0: No, you have Uh, one more left. If you don't say 1776, I'll extradite you to whichever country you came from.
1: I am, but it's not my next one. My next one's well-deserved, I promise. It'll make sense of what's going on possibly right now in Eastern Europe. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane
0: Saxon. Classical education is all about deepening the roots of our lives by planting them in the soil of a rich tradition. And this show is all about the heart of classical education and Memorial Press's view on classical education. So today for a little help on insight into that, we brought in Dustin Warren again, and we talked about five events from the years 1500 to 1800 that he believes are significant. And I'm pretty convinced after hearing these stories that if you explore them, internalize them, and think about the ways that these stories have impacted our modern day, you'll have a broader and better perspective. If you enjoyed this conversation, please like this video or comment below and let us know. And now here's our conversation. Dustin, good to have you back on. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me, man. You know, in Classical Etc., we talk about the heart, the ideas, the philosophy behind the Memorial Press curriculum. And one of the things that I'm passionate about is the way that classical education broadens our perspective. Um, a lot of times, one of the issues in thinking that I suffer with um, and have suffered with in the past is is having a very localized kind of myopic perspective of this is what things seem to be like right now. So this must be true now and will be in the future and must have always been true in the past. Yeah. Um, but the reality is things change. And the project of classical education is rooting us in a broader, deeper Past. So last time you came on, you gave us five things, <laughs> just five from history. And so we got smarter this time. We're doing five more. We narrowed our scope, 1,500 to 1,800,
1: correct? Yeah. Yes, thankfully.
0: And you're a person who's just fascinated with stories, who loves history, who has been brought in by these things. And I just want to chat with you. I made you choose five things from that 300 year window. And I just want you to tell me some of these stories, talk about them talk about the ways they can broaden our thinking
1: yeah uh first off yeah the 300 years was super helpful i'm glad you (laughs) like that idea last time i was like (laughs) oh this is really hard um i had it uh like i committed sin afterwards and thinking like cutting certain things out but yeah so i was thinking somewhere start i guess we ended what 1453 i think last time that's correct um with the fall of constantinople so kind of pick back up there you could say 1500 but Oh, well, we always kind of fudge with numbers in history classes. Sure, so we'll say 1453 <laughs> to about like 1800. Yeah. Might stretch. There were 200,000
0: people in the battlefield. And- yeah, 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 yeah,
1: it's always like there were 400,000, 500,000. Yeah. Like, eh, okay, maybe not. Um, but yeah, so the first thing I was thinking of, it just and it hit me instantly. And it's gonna maybe seem kind of cliche, um, but a lot of fun things in history is taking something very familiar and then peeling back more layers. Mm. Um, and realize there's a lot more to it, more maybe more than what you may have got, like I got in high school. Sure. Um, especially, like I think of the Industrial Revolution, for instance. It was high school it was super boring. It was like, oh, they worked, and then you actually read more and like, oh, this was like bad mm. in some places, places. Um, but the first one I thought of was 1492, mm. which of course we know the rest of, of the course. rhyme, which is yeah,
0: Christopher Columbus sailed yeah. on the ocean, and it yeah. was blue.
1: It was blue, yeah. I think that's what i do i ruin the run they think i'm gonna rhyme <laughs> for them and they hate it every time it's fantastic uh yeah so 1492 columbus sails thinking of course he's going to asia which um of course he, he think he's just going to go straight over but of course the trade winds hit and it drags him from spain kind of takes him down and takes him over into close to cuba and, and the indies and not necessarily talk too much about columbus because that would take a whole nother adventure because his journals are. What happens is very interesting, but um, to say the least, in a neutral way. Um, but the effects of it are I mean, I always bring with the kids, I show them something. Um, You're you familiar with the Columbian Exchange. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a recent theory, it's only like 56 yeah, years it, old. Yeah, yeah. So 56 years ago, a story, and escapes my mind, he pitched this idea of the Columbian Exchange, one of the big things that came out from Columbus's um, expedition. And it was laughed at at first, and then it came, like, over time, like, oh, wait, this makes perfect sense. This is, this is genius. And it's a very simple idea, but one big thing that comes out of 1492, which the kids see every day, but they don't realize or think about it, is the goods that they now have. Sure, so the Columbia, material goods. Yeah, yeah. So the Columbia Exchange, basically, was just the exchange of goods between um, Africa, North Ameri- or North America, Central America, too, and South America, eventually, and Europe. Um, and just for instance, like tomatoes, sweet potatoes, potatoes, um, trying to think what else, uh, corn, chocolate, which everyone, of course, loves chocolate, which the Aztecs would drink and, and just like straight, which 100%, that's that's a, that's a lot that's of That's why they thrived. Yes, yeah, that's why they thrived. The dark chocolate gave them power. Um, but all of that was not in um, in Europe and in many of our ancestors' homes. So like, you know, we think of things that are constant parts of our diet. So we think of chocolate, milk chocolate. We think of you know pizza or tomatoes and salads or sandwiches or potatoes. I'm more of a sweet potato guy personally. Um, good you know good oven baked sweet potatoes, some uh, cinnamon, uh, salt. It's a fantastic Thanksgiving kind of Christmas uh, specialty of mine. Um, but enough about my cooking skills, which are not very uh, beyond really uh, beyond that. But all those things that we often think part of our diets. It's not there until the 1500s, and then you think about like the potato, for instance, is such a nutritious um, and but simple plant to grow, and it plays a large part in helping. You think of Ireland most famously, until of course the unfortunate potato famine. Um, well, Got to help my ancestors, but uh, that's that 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 nutrition offered by that simple plant played a huge part in just health and the amount of food to be able to be grown back in the back in the old world. Um, it really enriched a lot of the diets of the world. Like nowadays we go into, you know, a, maybe a fancier store like Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. Or if you have a, a grocery store like Walmart actually has a bit of an expansive grocery, you go into a store now and you can pick foods out from all over the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can have a international cuisine, you know. I always think like Americans um, are kind of like the Romans, but instead of with religion, with food. You know, the Roman religion, it was, you know, um, they'd worship different gods all the time, you know, it'd be like in America. We'd say, oh, you know, it's this past Sunday. I worship the Presbyterian church. I think I'll go to a Buddhist church next week. You know, I uh, what the Romans thought, but you know, we think the same way with food, you know, Tuesday it's Japanese Thursday, it's Thai Friday. We'll have American. Sure. And the Columbia exchange, I think plays a huge part in that because with the old new world combining and that growth of sea travel, Columbus is exploring, you have just one aspect, the. Really, the just the simple exchange of cuisine mm. and broadening nutrition, and of course, God's gift to man, chocolate, which I'd be so sad. I'm just thinking about that 1500. No one had chocolate in sure. Europe. That's depressing to me. Um, but even beyond mm. that, that's that's just a nutrition. And the other big thing I think about 1492, and the fact that Spain and Portugal, and eventually England and France, is the missionary explosion. Mm. So we. Being Westerners, often we don't think about this, but the Eastern Church, really, up until the 1300s, 1400s, it was the largest church, probably, the population-wise, even under the Ottoman Empire and the Islamic Empire, it was it was the bigger church. Um, and it's not really until the 1500s when the colonial empires expand, start with Columbus, that it flips to where the Western Church. Do you think the Western Church, say, Catholicism, Protestantism, is worldwide? I mean, we you may be familiar, of course, with how really Christianity is becoming more of a, in the global south, in the southern hemisphere, rather than in the west and the north. And that doesn't happen without Columbus, though he didn't picture that, of course. Sure. That's what history is, is we us doing things and causing an innumerable amount of dominoes to fall in places we never imagined. Right. So it totally, totally shifts the weight of Christendom mm-hmm. in a large way, because Western missionaries are going, while Eastern, Eastern churches trapped behind the Ottomans and then behind communism and are just now kind of getting out in their own um and that's just i mean that's just two things right there yeah. you can get into that's, the opening up of slavery as well and many sure. other topics but those two right there is just with columbus
0: That that is interesting and i think especially if you look at the explorers and the motivations of the explorers mm. um, especially for that first 120 years if you ever really zoom in on what was causing these countries to start commissioning travelers to go out and try and do this because the economics of it doesn't really make sense when a lot of these people are going and dying a long way from the country that, yeah. that sent them. That at least a big part of it is this missionary impulse, mm-hmm. a, a true zeal to take their religious devotion to other places. Sometimes religious devotion is actually just a cover for, oh yeah, base motives. But there is yeah. some of everything.
1: Yeah, I was. Uh, I always tell the kids every year um, when we get to that era. There's there's the three G's, which I was taught, and I mean, you may have been taught that too. Of. of uh, Conquistadors and the colonial explorers, you know, God, glory, and gold. Mm-hmm. Some men have one, some men have three, some men have two, some say they have all three, but really it's about one. Mm-hmm. And yet it's it very complicated, um, of course, with that. Because some, you know, there's some missionaries who are genuinely interested in spreading Christianity. And then there's others who, it's more about the money. Right, uh, I think Cortez right. is the one who says, um, I have a sickness and the only cure is gold. Mm. Um, so he was maybe not the most noble man, you could say, from, right, our, right. from our view.
0: Yeah, and that that speaks also to the fact that with the expansion of global commerce and trade, starting in just the powerhouse of trade that is the the middle of Southern Europe that then expands overseas, you also then have the transfer of disease and germs that people can't. So goods are coming back and forth, some of them good ones and some of them bad ones, but now you have germs that are going back and forth and that causes devastation in North America and South America.
1: Yeah, and that's like the horrifying thing and uh, what always kind of... It shakes the kids, which it should. I mean, you know, it's so easy for statistics to become, I mean, um, my favorite uh, poet and humanitarian, Joseph Stalin, that's a joke. Uh, but his one of his great quotes, because he's quotable, is, you know, the death of one man's a tragedy, the death of a million is a statistic. Mm-hmm. It's very easy sometimes for statistics just to be meaningless, because mm-hmm. we can't humanize them. It's like, these are all people, fathers, right, brothers, right. mothers, etc. But yeah, I mean, it's upwards estimated 40, 50 million in America's die mm-hmm. from disease exchange. Um, and that's, I mean, an atrocious loss of life. So you see like, oh, like there's chocolate, which, you know, that's great. But then there's also the spread of disease because Native Americans just, they weren't exposed to, um, diseases that Europeans had. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's ghastly. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, it's ghastly in many ways. It really is. Sure. So number one is 1492. You have Christopher Columbus and basically the opening up of the second hemisphere. Yes. For Westerners who yeah. had previously not known that there was this hemisphere here. Yeah. What's your next date?
1: Yeah. Um, a next date right after that, I'm going to be a contrarian. Um, because that's 80% of my shtick as uh as as most historians Every history are.
0: teacher needs a shtick. Yeah, so. yeah,
1: yeah. Mine is just to be a, a contrarian or, or as the kids sometimes call me a troll. Um but <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> I don't know what that means, but keep yeah, going. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, and the Generation Z in their terminology. Um, so oftentimes, if, if I say 1500s, um, usually in the first days to pop people's heads is uh, Halloween or All Hallows' Eve, mm-hmm. 1517, mm-hmm. October 31st, when Luther went to the church in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 Theses. And usually that scene is like, that's like the moment mm-hmm. the Protestant Reformation began. Mm-hmm um and there's the split and now there's a Protestant church is forming and there's a Catholic church and the Western church is now split and all the innumerable amount of effects of that but when we look at that we read 95 theses um uh, which are important and it was significant what happened but to me the really i think important next important date especially in in the reformation's time is not in 17 but in 1519 which 1519 by itself is a huge year because in that year you have Hernan Cortez begins his invasion of Mexico and his con- his conquest which opens up you know the new world empire um, for all the good and bad that the um the uh the explorations uh, explorations did and then two you have uh, Charles V becoming Holy Roman Emperor and he becomes basically the first like worldwide emperor and mm. has immense power and then three you have Luther engaged in what's called the uh, Leipzig Disputation with a uh, very skilled, very intelligent uh, uh, opponent, uh, Johann von Eck, or Johann Eck, um, a very, very uh, intellectual and respected Catholic theologian. And in this disputation, I think really, is when the Reformation really begins to, to no longer be just about an in-house discussion, but maybe we're leaving the house. Maybe mm-hmm. we're you know starting building our own house. Because in that debate, and we, walk, and we have a records of it, which is just fantastic. I'm so thankful that people wrote these things down. Uh, Luther and Eck are debating about many topics for a while. And Luther's been asking questions. He hasn't, he still, you know, sometimes I, I joke with the kids, you know, in 1517, Luther didn't like rip off his monastic robes and like just dress totally different, get rid of his haircut. You know, he's still, you know, dressing like a monk. He effectively wants to be a monk still and stay single um, until, of course, he meets uh, his wife later, which... That's a whole uh, interesting escapade of its own. Um, but in 1519, him and Eck are debating. And Eck is very smart. He's very, very crafty, very skilled. And in many ways, he probably wins this debate because um, he really gets Luther in a corner. Though so it actually helps Luther um, in many ways long-term in what he wants to do. But he's, they're, they're really arguing about authority. And basically, like, how do we figure out what's the right belief? Mm-hmm. Who's right here? And Eck is asking him, okay, so you say the Pope um, is not a, a, a high authority on these matters. And, and Luther says, no, a man can be wrong. The Pope could be wrong. And he, he's questioning that. And then Eck's like, okay. And then he pushes him. So if one man could be wrong, could men be wrong? Or can't men be wrong too? And he asks them, what about councils? and he opens up the idea of, what about the church councils? The first seven ecumenical councils, the Council of Constance 100 years before, could those also err? Because Luther had been trying to appeal to those. Sure. And and what he's doing really is pulling it, so he's saying like, okay, so you know, Luther, you're saying, you can't, can't trust the Pope, we can't trust the councils. He's cornering Luther, and that's the moment when Luther realizes for him, as he'll talk about later, it opens up really for him the, maybe the first time scripture and that idea of that scripture alone, a very core Protestant idea amongst Protestants. And Luther then says, yes, you councils can err the Pope can err I, I have to, I'll have to rest on scripture primarily and scripture alone as my sole authority. And that I think is the key moment when Luther begins to say, and begins a turn from let's try to stay in and just asking questions and reform into where he says, no, I, I think I'm leaving now. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, the pivotal moment when you start to see the shift. Sure. Um, and however each side feels about you know that shift and stuff, um, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, whatever, it's that key moment, mm-hmm. I think, that's often forgotten. Because right. from there, that's where you have the real split um, um, coming in to me,
0: like to me at least. And in the history of philosophy, that's a, that's a much more momentous moment, which I think is what you're keying in on, than necessarily the the hitting of the thesis onto the door. Because yeah, now sure. for the world at large, that is the Western world, who's mm-hmm. who's in a particular tradition of thinking about ideas, Luther is now appealing to a particular way of determining how you can make sense of the world yeah. that is different than it ever had been before, and that has now changed many more times in the broad cultural mm-hmm. consensus, but this is the first person who has really gone against the broad cultural consensus and the institution that had reigned dominant for, for so long.
1: Yeah, that's the thing is, I think that's part of what history is, is, double is, uh, when you you study history, like you're born into a world with forces that the dark word would be control, and I like to use dark words because it gets the kids' attention, um, control you. There, you grow up in the systems of thinkings and your cultural way of interpreting data, and you don't even know that they're there. You're wearing glasses from when you're born, and you don't know that they're there. And through like learning this, you're like, oh, this is why Christians on different sides of the avenue um, think. Maybe totally different, or have different ways of approaching it. And it's not just like, oh well, they just think differently than me, and that's just how it is. You can start to peel back those layers by seeing by seeing these things. Um, and of course, it's real funny to me too. When uh, this is a side note, uh, the Lutherans after Luther's death, they'll contact the Eastern Orthodox Church and start trying to communicate with them and try to like think like, oh well, you know, uh, y'all had a split with Rome five hundred years ago, and so do we. So we must be exactly alike, and. It, it, they're not <laughs> it's, they, they write I think the Patriarch of Constantine writes back and says I love you you're great but we can't agree so we just, just you know thanks but no thanks yeah thanks but no thanks <laughs> basically it's just like that okay um, but so, that's me as next that's the second date for me sure so
0: 1492 yeah. then 1519 the mm-hmm. Leipzig debates yeah what's third
1: third is connected um, so really that's the Continental mm-hmm. Reformation um, as, as some historians mm-hmm. call it and it's of its own unique character in many ways um though still connected to me the next one and this is kind of a cheat which historians do uh
0: which reminds me of our patron saint of classical etc martin catherine who when asked what are the five books that every classical educator should read he then proceeds to usually list roughly 60 books if you take each of his recommendations which are like (laughs) the corpus of shakespeare's literature uh you know, yeah. And, and in each of his five recommendations, there's like 15 other books. So you're doing, you're pulling a mark.
1: Okay, that's good. I'm in, I'm in good company then. I feel <laughs> I am, I'm following uh, the greats then. Uh, yeah, you start general five things and then secretly shove in a bunch. That's right. You know, it's like a, it's like a, you know, congressional bill, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, the next one, next one. It's connected. Uh, I would say, and this may be a bit of an obscure one, maybe, uh, the 1559 Elizabethan Settlement, mm-hmm. which sounds really bland and generic mm-hmm. um, and just kind of boring, but it's hugely um, influential in so many ways, particularly in regards to uh, America, um, religion, and the intersection of those both between England and America. But let me just back up for a second before I get uh, get turned around. So 1559. Is really the ends, in some ways, of the English Reformation, which, of course, starts, in some ways, with Henry VIII. Though, of course, that, that's a whole complex thing, which we probably don't have time to get into. But, of course, you're familiar with it. Henry VIII, all the wives wanting a divorce. Um, sure, and the Protestant Reformation is yeah.
0: occurring in the continental yeah. Europe and in England. Particularly, it's just, for some reason, extremely contentious. And the monarchs. Yeah are going back and forth.
1: Yeah, and you can't have separation with church and state. Sometimes people are like, why is the king involved? But that's just how the world was, really. Right. Um, but it starts off with Henry VIII looking for that, although there's a lot of people in England becoming influenced by correspondence with Luther, with Calvin, with um, some other mm-hmm. ones as well on the on the uh, continental level. But there's been a struggle, basically, between different figures, and that would take some explaining to do, basically. But long story short, um, Henry VIII, was wanting to keep really his own church, but still be Catholic effectively. And Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop, was wanting really of Canterbury was wanting really to have a reformed church of the of a Calvinistic flavor. Mm-hmm. But well, Henry VIII king, so you know can't really compete against that, especially since Henry VIII has executed a few previous of a uh, sure uh, cr- He's crumb, got a uh, track record. Yeah, he has a track record, um, an illustrious track record in some ways, um, but. That's been the problem for him. But when Henry VIII dies, Edward comes on, uh, the son of Henry VIII, and he puts through this basically um, Calvin's dream of what uh, church should be in England. But then, of course, Queen Mary comes in, who is Catholic and uh, and doesn't like Cranmer because Cranmer, in part, helped get uh, his uh, her mother, Catherine of Aragon, kicked out. Um, by the divorce and that whole, once again, it's a whole, it's a whole giant mess, but long story short, there's basically, it's really a push and pull between reformed Protestants, some Protestants in the middle and Catholics. And it's just a giant mess. And when Elizabeth comes to the throne in 1559, after this whole entire family, religious, uh, argument, basically, she's trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to be? Where are we going to fall on the spectrum between all these different parties? and Elizabeth in the settlement basically takes um, the middle way, as it's often called. We're going to be both Protestant, Mm -hmm. but also be Catholic. We're going to keep aspects of both and try to basically create a big tent, Mm -hmm. which even today, our brothers in Anglican Church, they're they're marked often by just, you know, their view of like big tent, because you'll Mm -hmm. find Anglicans who are more high church and uh, more Anglo-Catholic, and Mm -hmm. you'll find Anglicans who are low church and you might say more evangelical um and just, and that's just how this is how they think and how their and how their way of life is approached in many ways um but with Elizabeth 1559 she creates that idea and that is idea is to keep england together which of course is a good idea in some ways and a good intention the problem though is as we know when you try to make everybody happy somebody's going to be really unhappy with right. you um you can't please everyone you just can't and there's a certain group that really gets born out of this. Um, a group at first who is called this as an insult and that's the Puritans. Mm. Um, there is a group of Protestants who wished to maybe, and this is where the whole, the kids get really confused about this because nowadays people don't really argue about this as much anymore, but the wet and basically, um, as one kid put it once, um, uh, the wet and dry baby debate pretty much. Go. Yeah, is you know, are we going to baptize our babies? Or are we not going to baptize right. our babies? Are we going to have bishops? Are we going to have independent congregations? Are we going to have, um, uh, and all communion styles, types, on and on it goes. And Elizabeth is saying, nope, one house, one church, we're all staying together. And mm-hmm. one group's saying, we don't feel like we can be a part of this. And that settlement and her enforcement of it. Really drives the creation in many ways of the Puritans. Mm-hmm. And the Puritans, of course, as and because you mentioned this, uh, I think, conversation once, um, the Puritans are a group have a tremendous effect on English and American history. Sure. They're the ones who really coordinate the English Civil War, which is a fruit of the religious settlement in, in the 1640s, where the Puritan Republicans essentially under with Cromwell wage war against the Royalists under Charles the First charles first loses is beheaded and they create the only time the only brief english republic Mm -hmm. um and after its failure for uh several reasons um a lot of those those people who end up immigrating are puritans and they end up going to of course our possibly hopefully favorite nation in the world um as i tell the kids uh, america and it's not a coincidence that in the 1770s you have an American Republic with its strong, very strong overall Protestantism, its views on individual at um, work ethic. And a hundred years before, you have England with a very similar culture. It's It's connected directly. If you don't have Elizabethan settlement 1559, you don't have probably the Puritan Republic in the 1640s, and you don't have that. You probably also don't have America as we know it, because those things are just building on top of each other all the way back.
0: I I really like that pick. I I think that it illustrates a couple of points that are kind of important from our conversation. One, at the beginning, you talked about um, the Columbian Exchange and concept that i pointed out there is that Mm -hmm. when you start looking at the motivations that caused people to try and explore Mm -hmm. a couple of people were just pure thrill seekers but after that it starts to not make that much economic sense to be sending people across the ocean here's a motivation we need religious freedom that Mm -hmm. becomes extremely important to the identity of our nation and so the puritans represent that in a lot of way another thing you pointed out there that i've Really, always found interesting is with the formation of our government, the Glorious Revolution has such an important Mm. role to play in the 1600s politics of the colonies. And even in the uh, organization of the House of Burgesses and the various things there, the Glorious Revolution gives us kind of a vocabulary that the the citizens of the continents mm-hmm. of the United States are that will be the United States start to develop their own political philosophy and ideology, mm-hmm. so that when conflict occurs much much later in the seventeen seventies, uh, that there is a robust thinking that is distinctly American about how we should you know exist in these new United States. So I think you're right that that Elizabethan settlement becomes the catalyst for a lot. It does, and that's the and that's
1: the thing that may seem counterintuitive, but thanks to the kings, we have republics, um, or then the queens too. Um, Elizabeth's rule, and then I mean honestly, you could do a whole episode on just the Stuarts in sixteen hundreds. They're yeah. just a um, fascinating and also um, messed up family. Sure. Honestly, some of them, especially Charles II, he's a man of very interesting character. Um, but yeah, those there are abuses within religious freedom but also in political freedom, which, gets of course, is tied in this time. Um, really, this produced the Bill of Rights in, 16, mm-hmm. in the 1680s with the Glorious Revolution, which, if you don't have that, you don't have the Declaration of Independence the Civil, and, and the Constitution without that. Everything's building on top of each other. History right. is just continuous. Um, in many ways, it's just like dominoes in all directions constantly.
0: So we've got three. What's your fourth?
1: Fourth. What was my fourth? Let's see here. So oh Oh, yeah, naturally. Um, this one is a huge cheat. Um, it, it's it's going to be uh, it's be one of those giant bills. Um, I'm going to combine two technically two events. To me, they they run together: um, the Scientific Revolution and the Enlightenment. Mm. Um, and that really runs from like 1600 to 1800. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to kind of pick one year for it. So I'm going to fudge it. Um, but to me, this is probably and this is what I tell with the kids, and we we sit and we read through the documents and the sources of these guys. To me, this is the most I think, um, aside from the Reformation, the defining moment in what will be in, in the development of the Western mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it is shaped so much how we think, um, for good and for bad. I think every day, as as Westerners and as Americans, um, yeah, and it's so often it, forgotten or def, minimized.
0: Define what you mean by the scientific revolution, because you're not yeah. really able to pin it down to a day. Before. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: scientific revolution. Of course, you can get into Sir Francis Bacon and and Isaac Newton and Copernicus, but not so. We don't really go that much direction. Um, when I think about the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment, the 1600s to the 1800s, really. Is you see a a change in in thinking in some ways. So Sir Francis Bacon, um, who funnily enough is killed while experimenting, um, trying to freeze chickens, mm. um, which is that's you know, a tough way to go. That's a tough way to go. Um, somewhere, um, um, I feel like that's some uh, as an advertisement waiting to be used somehow by some chicken company right now. Um, but regardless. Uh, <laughs> Death by chicken. Um, But regardless, um, he really comes up with this idea in some ways or popularizes the idea. Um, And he's really focused just on science. Um, He writes some works at part time. He's a chancellor for the British. He works for King James I. If I remember correctly, it was James. I could be wrong. Someone can fact check me later on the Internet. Um, But as part time, he's really interested in thinking and science. And he really pushes this idea of the inductive uh, way of thinking. Mm-hmm. You can contrast to maybe Aristotle and others' deductive emphasis. So essentially, inductive meaning the scientific method, which we all learn in school, right? You know, you take, you experiment, you have a hypothesis, you experiment, you analyze the data, and then form your conclusion. You know, you use all the data you have to arrive to conclusion, basically. And his big idea really is: let's test the world. And, and then, and figure out what's the best way of doing something. It's very simplistic, kind of reductionistic, but that's Bacon's idea. And that's fine. That's just in science, That's always intended for, you see Newton. Similarly, you see Rene Descartes with a similar idea, but he takes it a little farther into philosophy, but it's in the 1700s. And this is the thing I always stress to the kids is the way you think about one topic, it bleeds into another. You know, the Americans are very democratic in politics. That bleeds into other aspects, religion, other aspects. Every way of thinking in one area, it's your whole person, not a divided person. And with Bacon's idea, originally the science, it's not long until someone says, okay, we can test an experiment and find the best way of maybe you know freezing a chicken. Can you, If you freeze a chicken, can you heat it later and it cooks well, which it does, thank God. Um, otherwise, we'd all be poisoned um, probably right now. It only takes one person to say, wait a second, Using this idea of reason and logic and scientific method and observation through our senses, what's the best form of government? Mm. As John Locke asks, um, as Thomas Hobbes asks, as um, uh, John jacques Rousseau asks, who's probably my favorite because he's the most wild and um, off the wall uh, of these men. And the Enlightenment really is a time Um which the enlightenment defined by Immanuel Kant is it's man's use of his reason, not bowing to the church or bowing to the authorities or bowing to um, whoever, but you and your reason to figure out the world. That's Kant's, you know, he writes a a thesis called what is enlightenment. Mm -hmm. He lays it out simply and basically takes shot at every authority in Europe minus the king because well, you know, the king could kill him. Um, But everyone else is on this hit list. But once you ask that question, it opens up in some ways Pandora's box Mm. Um, because now it's what's the best, what's the best government? What's the best society? What's the best economy? What's the best maybe religion? Is there a best religion? Is there actually a way we can understand God? Mm -hmm. If reason is our ultimate guide and becomes our, in our ultimate guide. And from that, basically you really have, I mean, huge emphases coming out. So you think about religious skepticism, um, did you ever, curious, did you ever read Candide in mm-hmm. high school? No. I have read that in high school. And you probably, you don't read this in uh, typically in classical world. Um, but I read it, I went to public school, um, and we read it in high school. And it is, in many ways, a blasphemous book. <laughs> it's just, it's a uh, it cross it, uh, Voltaire, who wrote it, he's one of the main Enlightenment thinkers. He's not the smartest guy, but he's the wittiest. He's like um, the most, he's the popularizer. He's the Marvel Cinematic Universe sure. of the Enlightenment thinkers. Um, and in Candide, you read it, and if you read it, which I would recommend if you're uh, mainly a college level to read it, because he gets, he's he's um, like I said, it's a little, bla- it's partially blasphemous in some places and a little risque to say the least. But when you read that, it sounds like you're talking to a modern person. Mm. There is rooted deep into it, religious skepticism. Is rooted constantly with the problem of evil and is there really a good God and the world's so horrible and it's messed up and and on and on it goes. And it's basically this conclusion of, you know, there is no greater way to know God. There's just me and you, there's just our own reason. We just gotta figure out for ourselves um, in many ways. And that religious skepticism to where we see today, to where um the idea of God as a purely scientific concept. Mm. Um, And that skepticism towards miracles, um, which Lewis tackles in in his book on miracles, and particularly, um, is born in that age. Just one aspect, like the way our society is today, the secular society, the critiques against God, religion, it starts with the Enlightenment. Sure. Um, which, of course, from a Christian perspective, would be, well, that's terrible. But there's also some good things as well. I mean, you see with with the Enlightenment thinkers, like Locke's conclusion is monarchies mm-hmm. don't work. He grew up in the English Revolution period we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Things are really horrible and bad. Obviously, monarchs can abuse power. This doesn't go well. Maybe we should try to form a republic, a idea of the social contract.
0: Um, and that's, a we would say, at least from our perspective, a good benefit. Sure. I like to live in a
1: republic. I hope you do too.
0: And other things like counting how many times people die after you put a leech on them versus how many times mm. they get better. And if the times they die is more than the times they get better then we stop putting leeches on people. Yes. Uh, many medical advances and technological advances and the quality of life and le- life expectancy mm. just vastly different even in 300 years yes. because of verifying using empirical processes. Mm-hmm. But as you've pointed out, you know, the, the philosopher Charles Taylor um, is reflected on the fact that the modern man is the first man in world history who has had the option to choose whether he would believe in God or not. It wasn't something that was inherent in his Mm. cultural milieu growing up. And and that does something to a person to have to, you know, according to the scripture, the fool says in his heart that God does not exist. Mm -hmm. But today it's it's one of the options among many as Mm -hmm. to whether you're going to be a religious person. And that's an interesting just fact of our cultural existence because of the scientific revolution.
1: Yes, um, and that and that's what's ironic is it starts with Christians, mm. like Bacon. Um, Newton believed in God, of course. He probably was an Arian, but you uh, know we at least count him as a as a uh, at monotheist in some sense. But a lot of the early Christian uh, or scientists were were Christian, and some of the also in the Enlightenment also were as well. But that's what's interesting is Bacon creates something he never meant to create. Mm. Uh, men take his idea and take it to places he never, We, I'm sure, imagine he would intend to. Um, so there's like that very negative aspect, we might say, of the religious skepticism, um, which is born just basically there is no where to wait, no God, um, which you see with some of the founding fathers. Um, but you also see some positive aspects. And in and many ways, and this, is, um, this is where I, my big cheat's coming in because viewers may be thinking, okay, these are a bunch of Americans. Where, where's 1776 at? And that's when history began. No, oh, you have um, one
0: more left. If you don't say 1776, I'll extradite you to well, no. whichever country well, you came from. I
1: am, but it's not my next one. My next <laughs> one's well-deserved, I promise. It'll make sense of what's going on possibly right now in Eastern Europe. Um, if there is no enlightenment, there is no revolution. Mm. And what I mean is this. So in many ways, I think the phrase great American experiment, mm. um, it's a phrase often used by historians. In many The reason it's called an experiment, I think, in part, is because, well, it is an experiment, it's an experiment of the Enlightenment ideas. So this idea of a man with his reason can form a better society, mm. a community with reason. Like Locke's belief, and this really is the divide. I think in many ways, the American Great American Experiment is an argument over was John Locke or Thomas Hobbes right? Um, and you see that often reflected in the viewpoints of Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, mm-hmm. who I'll try to refrain from um Singing villainy urge every time I hear that I hear the name now, but uh, it's really hard not to. Um, but John Locke, just to recap their views here and tie it in, into America, um, he's in many ways a founding father of our uh, the unspoken founding father of our republic. His idea was that man with his reason, um, who who is born blank, neutral slate. We can come together if we're taught right and educated right, and we can work together to form a republic. And if the government doesn't work out, we can cast it down and try again. Mm. It was an inherent belief of his that man could work together. And Thomas Jefferson deeply believed in that. He believed in flaws that he had, but he believed that if you educate society, you educate the average person, that they can work together, that they can, they can keep this experiment going, that this can work. And he believed in many ways, as Jeffersonian democracy and um, Andrew Jackson carries on um, in some ways, this idea that the average American can vote, which is in some ways how we get to universal voting for people without who don't own property. So thankfully, I can vote because of that. Um, but Jefferson believed that, but not all believed that. Alexander Hamilton was more, of, in some ways, of the Hobbesian perspective. Thomas Hobbes, um, he was a bit different. He was the contrarian to John Locke. Hobbes wrote a famous book called Leviathan. And its basic idea was man is as to quote him, uh, man is nasty, brutish, and short. Mm. His life is short. Um, he's not born like Locke says, we're born blank, and we can if we're educated well, um, we can become we can become good people. Hobbes was more, no, nah, man's evil. Man's in functionally in society. Man is obsessed with getting an advantage, hurting each other, power. You need someone with a strong hand to keep order. He didn't have faith in man to work together. And that's why he called his book Leviathan. His idea was, we need a mighty king. He takes biblical imagery from Job. He says, we need someone who the people put their trust in as a sovereign and who will enforce order. Because mm. in some way he says, it kind of implies here, I feel, now Hamilton talks about this a little bit in some ways, we all kind of want. A And We all want a strong man to kind of lead us and enforce our will. Uh, you ever seen like the cover art of the Leviathan? No. You ever seen the book? It's no. like it shows like this. It's this weird picture. There's like this giant man walking over English hills, and it's like you look close, and his body's made up of people, huh. and then it's like a crowned king, and he has a sword and the and the scepter. It's a really trippy picture. First thing, it's armor. We do it as a warm up with the kids, um, beginning of class, and they look close, like, oh, that's people. That's weird. But like the idea is like the people are is the king. Sure. And in many ways today, that's the great American question. Um, even as founding fathers talked about um, is the Jeffersonian versus the Hamiltonian view. Are we a people who, because Hamilton's view was, you know, I don't trust the average person. Power must be kept, voting power must be kept to more of the elites of society, the educated. Not everyone should vote. He was more restrained about that. He was nervous. He had that Hobbesian view. And in many ways, I think today, America is is a question of, you know, who was right. Was Jefferson right? Can you have a republic? Can it work together? And and if it educates itself and leans into wisdom, can it can it work together and form a prosperous society? Or are we uh, as monarchists, cuz they are they do exist. I know a couple. You know, are monarchists right in that mankind can't be good? They're going to tear each other apart. We need a strong man. We're yeah. going to have a monarchy again. Um, and that's, I think, a great question. It still kind of lingers over America. Sure,
0: underneath of certain ideas for certain. Um, um, so what's your fifth one?
1: Yeah, last one. Um, my last one, um, which technically I'm kind of going back in time slightly, but it's in the 1600s. Um, have you ever heard of Peter's European Tour? No. So this is not a rock tour. U2's um, not involved or other bands. Uh, Peter the Great name at least I'm yep. sure you heard um, fascinating man um, really liked uh, he, he was a big fan of dwarf parties actually okay. um, he liked he, one time he threw a big party and invited all the dwarfs um, in Russia because he thought that would be hilarious um, not that maybe the best moral guy but interesting character nonetheless but Peter the Great um, in 1697 1698 he went on um, a, a tour of Europe Russia by this point, just to give an insight, it's not the Russia of today. Russia effectively in 1697 was a agrarian society, a feudal society, while Europe was entering into the edges of the Industrial Revolution, was advancing in many ways slowly into democracy as led by Britain, um, the democratic ideas. Russia is completely in three, four years in the past. It's mm-hmm. completely backwards from their perspective. And Peter, as a child, His mentor um, was really good about exposing him to other cultures. They play a game where they grab a globe, he'd spin it, and he put his finger on a country, and they learned about that country that Mm -hmm. day. And he got really interested in the West, and he realized his country needed to adapt or it was going to die. So he does something interesting that maybe no other monarch's ever done, that I know of, and I'm sure I'm wrong somehow. There's a history so long. But for about a year or two, he does what we might call the millennial gap year. Um, He goes into Europe. Studies abroad. Yeah, studies abroad. Um, At first, he's in disguise. Eventually, people find out because, you know, this Russian guy keeps showing up and he has a weird accent and he mysteriously has money and he also has people following him a lot. So, eventually, he gets out. But he tries to, at least at first, be in disguise. And he goes mainly to the Dutch and to England. Though he does visit France for a time. And he just works. He gets a job working with ships. He wants to learn how to make ships by himself with his own hands. Um, he just goes to mines and sees how they mine there. He goes to schools, he goes to military uh facilities, he goes to schools, he goes to naval yards, he basically museums, he's basically like, Teach me everything you know, like what is it, how you think, your music, how do you how have you attained here? Especially Louis the court, which is the preeminent court probably of Europe at the time. Um, I mean, you know, like, you know, the long hair and um, all the fashion that comes out of course from Louis. I mean, the 60s rockers like Queen, they, that's where they got <laughs> yeah, their image. Exactly. Um Rock stars. But that tour though, when he goes back after a couple of years, because there's a rebellion while he's gone, but you know, things at home. When he comes back, he brings back a thousand Westerners he hires. Hmm. And though it's very painful and even leads to some rebellions, his own son, he throws in jail because he hates the idea. He takes those ideas and basically completely changes Russia. He basically modernizes it, westernizes it, as they often say in the history books. And Russia starts to transform from a eastern um Eastern an Eastern an Eastern European country that's not really concerned with Western Europe, to an Eastern European country that's very concerned with Western Europe that wants to model itself after it. Um, it becomes a country now to where they wore Kaftans and grew long beards. So now there's literally beer taxes where if you go into a Russian city, and you have a beard, you got to pay money, or they'll cut it. Hmm. Or they, even your clothes. If your clothes are too long, they're going to cut your clothes off unless you pay money, because you're going to dress like Europeans now. Interesting. You're, he sets up schools to where mm-hmm. you're going. Have you read um, Tolstoy at all? Yes. You ever notice how the Russians really seem to like French for some weird yeah, reason? Yeah, yeah. This is why, yeah. Um, he starts telling, like, hey, nobles, I'm going to send your son to school and pay for them, and they're going to go to France and study abroad. Mm. He purposely basically, like, grabs them and shoves them under the water, like, you're going to accept this, which causes problems. Um, you may think, like, does he just, like, some just weird, obsessed West guy with the West or something? There's a reason for it, and it plays into the day. Peter is wanting to modernize because he's wanting to expand Russia. What hurts Russia the most geographically, well, let me I'm gonna play, t- play teacher here for a second. If You look at Russia, what's something geographically they, gotta, they got the really short end to stick with? There's a couple answers you could give.
0: I mean, they're far, far in the North.
1: Good, all right, so we're on the right track. So yeah, far, far in the north, so it gets really- It's very cold. Very cold. So think about the ports.
0: Sure, they're ice.
1: Ice, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the only real port they got is um, up in the north, and it's frozen most of the year. He needs to expand westward and southwards. The problem is the Ottomans are one of the strongest empires at the time, and the west empires there are also powerful. And this is really the modern assessment counts to today. Peter wants warm water ports. Mm Mm-hmm to get warm water ports, really his whole entire life is summed up by the letter W. You get warm water ports, he needs to westernize, he needs to modernize. And once he does that, he's able to take on Sweden Mm -hmm. and the Great Northern War, trounces them eventually, Builds St. Petersburg um, as one of his new port capitals, expands into the Baltic, also takes on a couple of nations later. He also expands southwards to the Ottomans to get access to the Black Sea and the Azov campaign. And Peter's great idea is for Russia to be successful we need access to the Black Sea. We need access to um, the, the South, so into the Ottoman Empire. We need access to the West. We need to have expansion. We need land and warm water ports. And in many ways, that's the exact same strategy and mindset of Russia today. Some people look at Russia today and say, oh, they just want to, you know, Putin wants to recreate communist Russia. He was in the KJP. Um, I don't think that Putin's really interested so much in recreating the USSR. He's wanting to recreate the old Russian empire. Mm. Going back to Peter, which it goes even before Peter, Ivan, um, one of the Ivans, Ivan the Great, um, he married a Byzantine princess, Sophia, and ca- started calling Moscow Third Rome. We're the right, new Roman right. empire. Um, we have claim to these old lands. We're to become the new epicenter. Peter's carrying that idea, but i carrying this idea of, if Russia did succeed, we need access control of the Black Sea, Ukraine, we need access and control of the Baltic, we need access and control of the Middle, maybe the Middle East, Greece. And in many ways, Peter the Great lays out Russian foreign policy to mm-hmm. this day. Mm. Um, and it starts with the world tour.
0: And it, that's great because it has very clear application for your students. You can tell yeah. them that if you study abroad and you don't like your family very much, hire some friends and bring them back to be your family. Yeah. And, and that's an effective <laughs> way to change your family's culture.
1: It is. I mean, his one of his best friends is Patrick Gordon, a Scottish man who serves with them. That's his right-hand man. Because, um, well, his sister uh, basically, when, actually, this is a last little side note, his sister, um, I think his daughter named Sophia, when he's a kid, she basically takes over and literally um, has a basically has a hostage and he's on the throne, but she carves out a hole behind him to whisper commands to him mm. what
0: to do. Interesting. So, yeah, Peter doesn't have a good family friend of uh, good family. <laughs> say nice. at least. Well, it doesn't five things from your 1500 to 1800 that have clear mm. ramifications for today. Interesting stories, and we're just scratching the surface. Oh, yeah, just scratching the surface. All right. Thanks for doing it. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. If you like the show and would like to stay connected, consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We greatly appreciate any support for our show and ask that if you liked the episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network providing a classical
1: Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.